Hi, I'm Robert McGinnis. I'm the driver of the number nine Palto Network Synchros Racing for Mazda car. And welcome to the Bloke and the Bird Show. show you know we are going to get started right off with some breaking news so i could do the wolf blitzer this just in but, and you just did. I, I did. Actually, this was about two hours ago. Um, as we sit down and record was, and actually it may have been a little later than that, the ending of the Macau Grand Prix. Now, we've talked about this race before. Last year, uh, particularly in the, I believe it was the GT category, which is the big sports cars, they had multiple fairly significant crashes Several of them were so big that basically it bottled up the entire field behind them, forcing them to red flag the race until they could clear the crash because nobody could get past. Cars stuck out on track. Um, Macau is known for a lot of incidents occurring. It looks like a really tight track. Oh, it's It's extremely tight. It's a street track that um, in terms of its width, you know, historically, folks talk about how narrow Monaco is. Monaco looks like an expressway compared to the Monaco, or, or compared to the Macau track. It's wow. that narrow. It's another one of those tracks that, when you see the pictures from it, you look at it and go, "How is it that the FIA allows them to continue to run this event? Because wow. it's that narrow, and it's that narrow over the length of the entire course." Well, at the F three. Uh, race at Macau this weekend, uh, j- which wrapped a few hours ago. Very major, very shocking incident where Formula 3 racer Sophia Florsch sustained a, fi- a spinal fracture uh, as a result of being launched over the curb and being th- her car being thrown into the air over the crash barrier, through the catch fence, and into the photographer's stand. Uh, And this happened at the uh, Lisboa corner. Okay. Um, So she was running in 16th. This was not a battle up at the front. She was running 16th. um, It was a flat-out run over to the Lisboa corner uh, and impacted with Jahan Daruvala, um, which sent her spinning out of control, uh, launched her over the inside curb at the Lisboa corner where she hit the Toyota of Sho Tsuboy. That impact is what kicked her over the, the uh, crash barrier and into the fence. Um, the speed trap figure before the braking area showed that she was doing 171.6 miles an hour at the, the point of impact. Whoa. Yeah. Now, 
because we know that she is okay. Mm-hmm. Um, she's had some some injuries, but she is okay. I can make this statement. When I saw the footage of it, all I could think about was, wow, the arrow is pretty good on her car. It made it airborne. <laughs> I mean, she launched like an airplane. She did. What was a little unclear from looking at that, and, and I think uh, it looked like in the video that we saw, which actually, of all places, the Today Show had it this morning. That's how spectacular the scratch was. It looked like she was going nose first. I don't think she was. I think she was going sideways through the air. Yeah. No. And when she hit the photography stand, she hit it topside, if I can explain that that right. It looked like like, the top of the car went into the stand. Yeah. The bottom side, the floor of the car was the outside of what hit the stand. Like those cartoons when you see the little cartoon character run through the wall and you see the shape of the cartoon character. It was kind of like that. Yeah. Except not a cartoon and not a cartoon wall. So we know she's had a spinal fracture. Um, Suboy, which was the second car that she hit, um, he was diagnosed with lumbar pain and referred for further examination. Marshall, actually, I'm not even going to bother with pronouncing his name. One of the Marshall. One of the Marshalls suffered a laceration of the face, abrasion of his upper abdomen, and a, f- a fractured jaw. Uh, there were two photographers injured. One was diagnosed with a liver laceration as being observed in the hospital, and another photographer suffered a concussion is also under observation. So according to For, uh, a Ferrari Jr., again, I'm not going to try and pronounce his name because not easy. Um, he was following Flourish at the time of the accident, said that it was due to yellow caution lights flashing on the straight. Um, The incident happened just after a restart following an earlier safety car. Um, According to the Prima Power Team driver, um, who was making his way through the pack after a crash in a qualification race and an engine change that pushed him back to 28th and last on the grid, he said, coming coming after the preceding right-hand kink, I saw the yellow, but I think it was just a mistake by the organizer station. Sophia was really close to the driver in front of her, so when he braked early, she had no time to react. She hit his right rear, and that spun her around straight into Lisboa, and she flew into the other car. Wow. Yeah. So in terms of results of the race, now we know there was that major incident, with the, the condition of everybody there. In terms of the results of the race, Red Bull Jr. Dan Tictum won the race. Now, Dan Tictum should be a familiar name to you because there is an interest in getting Dan into Formula One. Helmut Marco has, has uh, described him as, I believe, scary but good. But the problem is Dan Tictum doesn't have the super license points to be promoted yet. Right. So there is some success. This still will not give him the super license points that he needs. They're looking at other options to try and get him to the level, but he's probably not going to be driving in Formula One in 2019, but he may be a name to watch. Well, I would assume that he's got to get to um, F2 before he gets, he can get those points. Yeah, I think so right now... So maybe he's got enough to get him into F2. I, th- I think right now they're trying to stuff him into whatever seats that they can that will get him super license points um, without necessarily having to win the entire series. Because they don't think he's good enough to do that. Well, that's the problem. If you are not good enough to win 
the lower series. I mean, yes, it's possible for you to have success at F1, but think of, think about that statement. If I don't mm-hmm. think you're good enough to take the series, then possibly you're not ready or good enough to be an F1. But let's also be clear, Max Verstappen didn't win the one open wheel series he competed in. No, he did not. He's also not a world champion either. And we'll talk more about Max later. Because we can't let that whole thing go away. So over to Formula One. And before we get to Formula One, we have to review the results of the Fantasy GP. Yes. The Brazilian Grand Prix saw some of the closest results of the league season, with the entire league separated by just 24 points last week. Phil's Team Rocket won the week with 134 points, with Michael's Mach 5 Racing in second with 129 points, and Patricia's The Bird Team in third with 124 points, while Agro's Puppet Racing was just a point back and forth with 123 points. Richard's Fly Fast team was 6 with 120 points, and the boys' Moonlit Black Cats team was 6 with 110 points. In the overall standings, it's a tight battle for first, with Phil at 2,538 points, and Patricia's The Bird team 14 points back with 2,524 points. Michael is in third at 2,470 points, but Agro isn't far behind on 2,415 points. Meanwhile, Richard's Fly Fast team has a solid grasp of 5th with 2,115 points, and the boy is in 6th with 2,034 points. It's all down to the wire with just one race left in the season. You had to know that was coming. I was going to say, that was so completely and utterly predictable. <laughs> are you breaking out Queens, We Are the Champions next week? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean. Actually, no, we would not be. Why? Because we will be recording before the final race. Which means we would not have the re- the final results for the league next week. So no, we are the champions. Will not be coming next week. The week after, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, how trite could you get? Okay, if you didn't see that coming, you um are blind. <sighs> have not been part of this show. <laughs> Anyway, so Phil and I have got a little uh, battle going. I'm 14 points down. I'm not sure I can pull it out. I um, I will tell you, I really struggled because my standard prediction grid, what I would have predicted, would have gotten me more points. But because Lewis won the championship in Mexico, I went with the default of Lewis has never won the race after he won a championship. Well, you know, there's not expecting that there's that. And there's also that, well, Ferrari's all of a sudden been driving better again. So do you bet against Ferrari combined with the fact that Lewis had never won a race after winning a championship or yeah, 
Well, there's that, but Ferrari's <laughs> driving better, but they're not driving that great. They're driving better in practices, and they might put it decently in qualifying, but they're not doing as well in no. the race. A- Austin, so and Mexico like, City, how do you... Austin and Mexico City were strong races for them. But how do you, like lay that out and I'm like I was I was really torn and so I went with past history predicts future results and I got burned and that ticks me off because I would have normally bet for Hamilton to win the race and if I had done that if I had I wouldn't be 14 points behind Phil 14 points is... So, by the way, Phil, the Abu Dhabi race is in two weeks. (laughs) You don't have to get your predictions in until after Thanksgiving weekend. Like, go for, like, the last weekend of November. 14 points is not insurmountable in the Fantasy GP League. No. This is not Formula One, pure Formula One scoring. So 14 points is still fairly doable. But he has to have a bad week, and I have to make up 14 plus. Yeah. It's it's going to be harder. It's not insurmountable. It's possible. But as of right now, I'm going to give it decidedly mathematically possible. Well... This is also a way that for a race that is tri- typically fairly dull, at least for it to be exciting for you two. I know. <laughs> I know. The rest of the world is probably going to take a nap in it, but, you know. Oh, everybody needs to be cheering for me. Now, I'll tell you some other people that this race could be exciting for. Because we may think that because the driver's championship is locked up mm-hmm. and the constructor's championship is locked up, that all of the battles are done. And, yeah, that's what a lot of people are thinking. But the reality, is, well, at least if you're a supporter of some teams, they're reminding you that, no, we're not finished yet. There's a couple of drivers who are going, no, we're not finished yet. There's still bonus money available to them. Well, and keep in mind, most contracts read that you know <clears throat> your bonuses are based on the number of points you get and your standings at the end of the year. And so that's a big question. Um, so just some thoughts that you might want to think through. On the driver's side, there are only three points that separate Valtteri Botas and Max Verstappen. And that's a battle for fourth and fifth in the driver's championship. That could be a big deal. But the one I'm really watching, the one I'm really, really watching is 13th, 14th, and 15th. There are six points that separate those three drivers. And those are Roman Grosjean, Charles Leclerc, and Pierre Gasly. Okay. That's that's going to be one to watch. And yes, I realize that's 13th, 14th and 15th in the drivers, but these are all other than Roman. These these are some young drivers. Leclerc's got the bid for being in Ferrari next year. Is he going to move up? I mean, there's And two- Gasly going to Red Bull. I mean, two of those three drivers are going to top-tier teams next year. Right. And there's only two points between Roman and Leclerc. I mean, that's easily made upable in the Formula One world. Now, on the Constructor Series, and this matters a lot to teams and their money, the top six places are pretty much set in stone. 
they're not moving. There's not there's not enough points available or are they're not good enough on the grid to get all of the points that they would need. However, the teams of um, Force India, Sauber, and Toro Rosso are so close in points, and that's 7th, 8th, and ninth on the grid, those could flip around. And for Sauber to be in 8th after years of sitting in ninth and 10th, and only being ninth because they had something like an HRT or a caterum behind them is pretty big deal. Actually, it was a manor, but... Oh, in manor. Yeah, it wasn't... Caterham and HRT were gone at that point, but they were... 2012, when, when Caterham and, and HRT were still around, Sauber was was a strong mid-pack team. And, but when they fell off, all they had was manor left. So, but one thing that I think it is worth reminding is as much as we highlight this stuff, the truth of the matter is next, well, let's go with two years. Two years from now, nobody's going to remember where these teams ended up. No. All they really are going to care about, all anyone's going to know, and despite what the BBC wants to allege, um... Folks will remember the Constructors' Championship champion for several years. It is important. It does matter even to the fans. And the Drivers' Champion will still matter. So, And, and those are the only two stats that are really going to come out of this season that anyone's really going to care about, even though it's in the books. And if you really care, you could look it up. I get that. <clears throat> but in an effort to try to make Boring Dobby not be boring... <laughs> um. You've got Wait, to you mean f- double points didn't do it? Double points did not do it. Oh. Um, but you have to look at what will make it exciting, and you're going to have to look at some of these people to watch. And I think that some of the stories that are going to come out of the 2018 season, beyond you know Lewis winning his fifth and Mercedes winning their fifth and all of those types of things, one of the stories that you're going to hear about is Sauber's rise back towards the mid-pack. Mm-hmm. You're going to hear, you know, people are going to remember the Force India split. I mean, think about Force India lost a whole lot of points with their administration mid-year. Had they not, they'd be firmly best of the rest. But I think that's a more important story than the other stuff. Um, the reality is, when you look at the points that Force India has and where they are and where they're fighting, the fact that they are there only off of points that were earned post-SPA. Yeah. So not even half the season, and they're at that level that they're fighting. I think that says a lot. One, for the performance that the car actually had in it, combined with how much the other teams are actually struggling that they're fighting with a team that's only working with half a season's worth of points to end up in there. And if you're a Williams or you're a McLaren, that should be, I'm sorry, but that should be particularly humiliating. Well, Williams Williams needed to figure out how they're going to show up next year because they didn't show up. Seven points for the entire season. I don't, I don't care where... McLaren, and, and we'll talk about this more in probably about two, three weeks, but I don't care where McLaren ends up. The fact that they were not oh, third or fourth or better 
with a Renault engine after all of the issues that, that they had and after finishing fifth in Australia, the first race of the season, and Fernando Alonso in his famous radio message of, now we can fight. And clearly, they haven't. Well, yeah. And they're sixth, by the way. <clears throat> sixth overall. But sixth is better than ninth last year. It is. But they should have been... A, I mean, you look at where Red Bull is running the same engines. And complaining that it's not a great engine. Mm-hmm. So let's move on to some other news. So some, act- some, some other things that have happened. So we didn't really mention it, but Haas has signed Emerson Fittipaldi's, I believe, grandson. Grandson, if you can figure that one out. Um, Pietro Fittipaldi. Um, as a test and development driver. Now, his specific focus is going to be around um, simulator and correlating the simulator results with the actual way the car behaves. He's been given a test in the Formula One car, and now he's he's going to be um, responsible for trying to translate what the simulator is showing and what the car is showing and getting them to match better, um, which the entire Haas team says is a big weakness for the team. They've struggled with that quite a bit, um, and that's been holding them back. Okay. Um, we'll see where he goes further out. Uh, but they started conversations with the, the team started conversations with Pietro, um, just before his big accident at spot, the WEC season opener where he broke his leg. Now he was, if you'll remember, if you've been following any of the IndyCar series, he had been driving for IndyCar for a stretch up until he broke his leg. (laughs) Breaking your leg does change your situation for a little bit yeah so they are the team is hoping that uh they can also leverage the name a little bit you know emerson is a big name both in u.s motorsports and in particularly in formula one as well mm-hmm. so they're hoping that maybe there's some commercial opportunities there remember this this is a car that is still mostly bare of corporate sponsorship well yes <coughs> but they are backed by the the super name of Haas. Yeah, but it, it, at some point, they're going to want to see some spo- sponsorship dollars come in. And what I can't quite figure out is, and I get that they're somewhat separate organizations, but why is it that Haas Formula One has not been able to go and leverage the commercial relationships that Haas Stewart Racing has over in NASCAR to build some deals that that affect the two? I don't know. It may be just the inherent snobbery of both sides, and both sides do have it, of, well, you know, what what translates on one side will never translate on that other side. Um, And, you know, maybe that's narrow-mindedness, and maybe it's accurate. I don't know the metrics that they would be looking at to do that, nor do I know who the sponsors are on Haas Stewart. And, and that may be some of it also, is that the sponsors over at Haas Stewart may not be looking for the global exposure that you get with Formula One. Their, their focus may be purely around U.S. audiences and, and, and U.S. demographics, And at which point, yeah, I can understand to some extent the 
dis the lack of interest in looking at, at Haas, at least from a full season, but maybe when they were in the U.S., maybe, you know, over at Austin looking at something. I don't know. No idea. Other young driver news. So we heard a couple of weeks ago about Tatiana Calderon and her uh, test run in a Formula One car for, for Sauber. I believe it was in-season or young. I don't remember exactly. Actually, I think it was in-season testing okay. that they did with her. She is this weekend getting a second run in a Formula One car for Sauber. Um, she'll be in Sauber's 2013 car, which means that there's no restrictions on what she can do because it's not current generation, but that's a V8-powered car as opposed to the, the, the current generation. Um, that will be over at uh, Ferrari's test track in Fiorano. Okay. So if you happen to be in the Maranello area and you hear cars on the track over at Fiorano, that's what's happening. It's Tatiana driving herself. Nice. So we couldn't answer the question last time we spoke about her, but who is she? So a little about who she is. First off, um, she is Colombian. Born and raised in Bogota, Colombia, uh, she's been racing in various open wheel series since 2010. Wow. Um, not a lot of podiums, not a lot of wins. Um, actually, overall, through all the series that she's been in, um, in Formula 2000, she had one win, one fastest lap, and seven podiums. That was her best series that she performed in in 2015 and 2016 it was overlapped the two she's been in uh gp3 three times including this year um she was 21st in 2016 when she ran uh gp3 the first time 2017 she was in 18th uh and this year she's in 16th um but that's really about the most that she's done in GP3. So I don't think that she is necessarily future Formula One world champion. But maybe we'll get a peek at her in Formula One at some of the back marker teams. I don't know. I think it depends on the money that she brings is really what this is going to depend on. I don't think it's a secret that I am anxious to see a woman drive in Formula One. I'm very, I'm very excited to have the possibility, but I definitely want one that has some, some level of ability to compete. I don't want it to be embarrassing. Yeah, I mean, big picture, it'd be lovely if this was somebody who won a junior series, just yeah. like some of the men. But at the very least, you don't want a driver in there, male or female, who can't hit the required 107% to make it through exactly. qualifying. It, you, you at least got to have that. That that doesn't if you can't do that you you're not helping the sport in any fashion. No, no, matter, no matter what matter how gender much you money are. you bring. No matter how much money you bring, no matter what gender you are, if you can't drive that fast and you don't have that level of confidence in a Formula 1 car, it's a problem. So outside of new drivers, uh, this week in Brazil, new rapid crash assessment technology uh, incorporated by the FIA made its debut. Um, 
so the whole point of this technology, and I think we've heard some of it. We haven't gotten the full details about it. We'll get more about the details um, actually in December uh, after the FIA meets in St. Petersburg where they present the full details of the technology to all of the FIA. Um, but the whole idea is to get vital data about the drivers and about the impact and about the crash and about the incident back to race control and back to medical personnel faster. Okay. So they, the, the FIA admits, you know, in Formula One, that's not as much of a challenge. The, the tracks are fairly compact. Responding is not that time consuming. They can get the crash team, they can get the medical car there in seconds, truly. But they're not just looking at racing on formal tracks here or street circuits or things of that nature. This is something that they want to roll out to all of the FIA series, which includes series like WRC Ooh. and some of these other series where the actual race course is measured in, you know, tens of miles if not greater than that and it's possible that an incident that could occur 20 to 50 miles away from race control that they then have to get a response out to and try and get all of that information back about the incident and the condition of the drivers back to race control in a timely manner this allows them to get that data back to them within seconds if not faster Wow. That's huge. Not as big of a deal for some of these series that, that run on formal tracks, but in some of these other series, this could be a potential game changer and lifesaver. That's amazing and awesome. I'm glad people are thinking about that type of stuff. Yeah. and w Like I said, we'll get more about this um, in December at, at the FIA's meetings in St. Petersburg, but the first live test and live formal usage of this data system uh, was this past weekend in Brazil. Cool. Charlie Whiting is responding to the criticism over the Weybridge rules. The Weybridge rules or Vettel's temper fit? Both. Okay. And and the, the general response to that, not just Vettel Vettel being upset and, and his concern about the um, the team or the FIA pulling them in for a way without doing a full lap, the changeable conditions and the desire to do that. Um, you know, Daniel Ricardo also questioned the rules so that you know you don't weigh somebody until at least they've set a time so that you don't have an impact on the overall qualifying. Um, Charlie Whiting's response, though, is that the teams know this. The teams know what the rules are and what the parameters are. They should, this should be part of their calculation and part of their thinking. Um, he said, there will always be a risk you're going to be stopped. Ferrari knew that and should factor it in, which is why I, what I'm always telling the teams. It would be something that they say, if we do this, this is how long it will take. We might get stopped and have to add a minute there. It's completely random. Joe Bauer, the technical delegate, seldom tries to stop the first car coming in because in a short qualifying session like that, the first car could be coming in with a mechanical problem, having just done half a lap. To see two cars come in for strategic reasons after one lap is unusual. It's just the way it goes. 
Now, he's dismissed the notion of removing weight checks during qualifying. He says that the current system works. It does its job. Um, he went on to say that the competitors shouldn't be underweight. We'll always have random checks in qualifying. But what we do say is if the conditions are changeable, if they're coming in and changing tires because it's just rained a little bit, we would not stop anyone. That's when we put up the change of climatic conditions, which is an official acknowledgement that the weather has undergone a significant change and triggers certain flexibilities granted by the regulations. We've said that once that happens, we're not going to weigh anybody else. They know if the conditions are clearly changeable, a drying track, for instance, that we don't pull them in for weighing. Okay. So I guess they didn't put out the changeable conditions notification but it did did seem like the teams thought the conditions were changing. Right. Now, admittedly, what Ferrari had done is they, they swapped one type of slick tires for another type of slick tires, and they didn't go from dries to wets or, or wets to dries. But, yeah. I mean, we knew that they saw rain on the radar. There was concern that rain was going to come in. Maybe they didn't throw the changeable condition flags because the rain hadn't started yet, but there was still that concern of got to get a lap in as quick as possible here. Yeah. But I guess at, at the end of the day, I have to say it's racing. Yeah. And the truth is this was also Q2, not Q3. Mm-hmm. And the Ferraris made it through into Q3. It's not like any of those things were affected. Remember, Q3, Q2, you just have to be in the top 10. Yeah. The numbers get reset. So if you're number 10, yeah, it's stressful, but you make it. But where the concern is, and, and, and this is where, honestly, Ferrari was pulling a big gamble, whether, it weighed, whether there was a weigh-in or not, Ferrari was pulling a very big gamble. So here's the, the, the scenario that Ferrari was truly banking on and what they were trying with was track was dry, potential for rain before the end of the session mm-hmm. and possibly with a significant amount of time left in the session. Get a banker lap in to get a time on the board before those conditions change and do it with the best tires possible with or at least from a strategic perspective with the best tires possible and ferrari made a change in what they wanted to do strategy wise for the race they went with the harder tires with that thought of being able to run longer during the race and put them in a better strategic position but knowing that rain was coming in they initially sent them out on the softer tires rethought that decision to throw them on the harder tires but that shortened the window that they had to get that banker lap in before it potentially rained and threw everything out the window. And if they spent too much time in the pits and it got too wet for that tire, they would have been in a situation where they could not have gotten a time in the top 10 because they were on the wrong tire when the weather turned. Okay, there's a critical part of that story that no one wants to talk about. Ferrari made the decision to bring those cars in and delayed their whole... They, th- they delayed the, the time for them to go and set that, that, 
banker left. They changed the strategy mm-hmm. requiring them to come in, which triggered the ability for them to get called into the Weybridge. It was a calculated risk that they weren't going to get pulled. They got pulled. Deal with it. Had they wanted to bank on not being pulled, all they had to do was leave those cars out there to finish that banker lap. And I think that's a fair assessment. Mm-hmm. And if the session was going to stay dry the whole time, I would suspect that Ferrari wouldn't have cared one way or the other. Well, Whether exactly. they left the cars out there, let them set the time on the tire, on, on the softer tire, and then turn, or even turned around and said, you know what? Finish the lap, pull up short just beforehand so there is a time. And then we're going to go bring you in and put you, you know, turn and burn on on your in-lap to get in as quick as possible so that we could put you on the other tire. Right. But they changed the strategy. They put them out originally out on the softer tire. They changed the strategy to go onto the harder tire. That caused the risk. And, yes, there's all these other factors in place. But that's called racing. Yeah. I'm sorry, I have no sympathy, and the temper fit just excel- ex- exasperates my frustration about it. But what I did really appreciate, regardless of the temper fit, that the way that whole scenario played out added some nice drama to the qualifying session. True. You know, was Ferrari going to be able to get the lap in? Were they going to be able to pull the t- What was going to happen with those times? I did appreciate so you the drama like and the stress. In yeah, boring you, Dobby. You know, the, the drama and the strategy that, that brought to the qualifying session, I appreciated that. That that did make for a good story and make for some good excitement in Q2. So I can't knock like for that. So you would like for them to bring that type of, of changing type things into Boring Dobby? Yes. Kind of. I don't want it mandated. I, you know, I don't want the FIA to go, hey, just you know, randomly, we're gonna go and yank somebody off the track just to go and throw the strategies up in the air and make <laughs> no sprinklers, none of that. No. We're, we're, yeah. All right. What's next? So, and and I know we, we've we've heard this story before. The teams like to go and trot out this this line every so often of. We thought the engine was going to go. We thought it was going to blow. We were really on edge. It was really close. Mercedes is saying that now about Lewis's engine, that it was damaged in the race. And um, at one point, Mercedes team personnel declared that a failure was imminent. But frantic work in the pit garage and changes to settings that Lewis made on his steering wheel, because they can do that, helped ensure that they were able to remain in the race and finish it. You mean when? Well, mm. there was, in all honesty, there was no guarantee that he was going to win that race. No, we we definitely have uh, Esteban Ocon to give a little thanks to that one. But oh, do not stoke <laughs> those conspiracy theories. Don't know. <laughs> no. The only person that has got a conspiracy theory on the Ocon Verstappen crash is Martin Brundle. Move on. No, it wasn't Martin Brundle. It was Teddy Kravitz. Okay. And, but he's the only one it, that was saying. <laughs> no, I think he's what lit that fire. 
I don't think anybody was saying it until Ted Kravitz mentioned it in the coverage. Yeah. At which point he lit the fire. And now I'm sure there are, yes. Now it's all flying around that maybe this is what happened. But I don't think anybody was really seriously thinking it until Ted Kravitz threw it out there. Um, but where this actually does matter, and now, you know, as, as you're doing your calculations for Fantasy GP, we don't know the full details as to what happened here and, and, and what the state of the engine is, but that was engine number three. Mm-hmm. If Mercedes puts a new engine in, that's grid penalties. Correct. Mercedes could make the decision, if they think the engine is still workable, they could make the decision to stay with the the current engine, depending on what the damage is, or they could go back to an older spec engine without incurring penalties. But older spec engine, they were not performing quite as well. It doesn't have necessarily all the upgrades, and they're pretty close to maxed out lap-wise on those engines. Well, and they did that to Valtteri Botas. He ran an older engine in one of these races recently mm-hmm. um, to avoid penalties. Um, I don't know what their thoughts are going to be behind the fact that there's a dueling thing here. One, they've locked up the constructors, so it's no longer mm-hmm. a risk on the points. But the other piece of that is it's the last race. Do you really incur the costs of running... It's not the grid penalties. That won't matter a hill of beans. It's the cost of a fourth engine for one race. Well, there, there, there's... Or do you come up with Franken engine based on past engines? Well, there, there's a couple of different thoughts here, and there's a couple of things that, that you can look at. One is this is a decent time to take that and for for most of these front running teams this is a decent time to go and take that engine penalty it doesn't hurt them and if there are things that they want to test around the 2019 spec they can put in that new engine they can run it take the grid penalty it doesn't really affect anything in constructors if it works they get useful data if it blows up they're not really out anything and they still potentially get useful data out of it correct on an engine that they wouldn't, you know, and it's that much more running that they get knowing that there is testing the two days after the race anyway where they can play with some stuff. So there's that. There's also the, okay, don't take the grid penalty, do what you can, throw it all to the wall and see what happens with this engine. Even if the current spec engine blows up, you're not out anything. Well, they're in a no-lose situation. I mm-hmm. mean... Other than if they're keeping track for, like, the reliability records that they keep setting, you know, being able to run and stuff like that. But I'll be interested to see what call they make, whether they use Franken engine from a previous spec or if they go for new with as many upgrades as they possibly can throw on it so they can actually basically test in a race. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see what happens. So that was the race win. Mm-hmm. The other big moment of the race. So that would be Max Verstappen. Max V. Ocon in the I, title I, bout in Brazil. I, I, on, on one, 
one hand, I want to say that it, it was Max losing a win. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, I think that, that's probably accurate, although you've got to also add that it wasn't Max's behavior that necessarily lost him that win. And even the FIA has ruled, and, and the marshals have ruled, that Max was not in the wrong for his on-track behavior at the corner. No, no, but... I have you have to lay into it the comment that experienced and world champion race driver Lewis Hamilton said to Max that you know when as you rewind the whole series of incidents Lewis wrapped his arm around Max and said man you had more to lose that's something Max doesn't factor into these things he, he doesn't, and yes, Lewis was right about that. However, part of the reason why Max has had the success that he has had and Max is as popular as he is is because he pulls off moves like this because to him it's worth the risk. Yes, there is more to lose if he doesn't pull that out, but... He's not passing somebody on the outside at Spa in the rain if he's playing it safe because he's got more to lose. He, he is fighting for position, and he is driving always from the perspective of trying to win the race and trying to get ahead. So, yeah, Lewis is right. He had more to lose, and there was no reason for max to go and take that risk but that's not the type of driver max is and that's not that's not why max has performed to the level that he is and he is as popular as he is i understand all of that i mean we love that max takes risks but max will not be a world champion until he can still take those risks but calculate in that little bit of if this goes sideways I'm losing this. And that's the difference between a Max and a Lewis. Lewis takes crazy risks. Yeah. Lewis is capable of sticking passes that are utterly impossible. And, you know, they talk about it's impossible for everybody but Lewis. I mean, it's that kind of stuff. Yeah. But Lewis, as he has matured and as he has grown as a driver, he's got just that little factor that happens in his brain that says sometimes second is okay and that's why he's a five-time world champion and that's why he's as good and great as he is and max can't get there if he's always going for broke well then you wind up with first and last no i well he, he's being compared a lot to Senna because Senna was known for the same type of stuff. And, mm-hmm. and I think that may be accurate. But I think actually what you end up is more with a Sebastian Vettel. Okay. So Sebastian's – one of the things that characterized the four years that Sebastian won his world championship is that he had – his greatest successes and 
he had gained a reputation of being unable to pass and unable to race with other cars because <clears throat> many of um, Sebastian's wins in that Red Bull during the years when he won that championship were when the Red Bull was up at the front and managed to pull away fairly early in the race from the rest of the field, mm -hmm. at which point he had no more challenges and anything like that. What we have seen in the last several years with Seb driving in the Ferrari is that he's faced more wheel-to-wheel -wheel situations, and he does not consistently come out on top in those situations. He, he is getting into tangles with other drivers, and... He's he's coming out losing places. He's coming out damaging cars. He's coming out getting penalties fairly often. I mean, he still pulls off the passes. He can still race in a pack, but he ha at the very least he has not been nearly successful weaving through a pack as Lewis has been. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what you're going to end up seeing with a Max is. Max may become a champion. Max will definitely become a champion if Red Bull hands him a car that performs the same way that Red Bull's Renault cars that won the champion from uh, 2009 to 2013. That car that can leap out into the front quickly and get Max away from trouble as quick as possible. But the difference between Max and Seb is Max can weave through a pack. He so can. when Max has to start in the back because of an engine penalty or something like that, he can weave through. I mean, this is a guy that this he, year went can, from last to second. He can do it better than Seb, but as we have seen and as this shows, knowing when the risk is going to be too great, that's the issue. That's the problem. And, and what we saw in the beginning of this season, this is, this is along the lines of what we saw in the beginning of the season. I want to win so much that I see the slightest opening that I'm going to stick my nose in there. Whether I should or not is a different story. Right. And whether or not it makes sense to, you know, in this case, let him go, let him unlap himself because the reality is – in two laps, I'm going to take him anyway because he may be faster on the, on the, the straights, but I can take him on the turns, and overall my car's faster than him to begin with. I mean, that's the thing is he's not obligated to have let him through. I get that, and Ocon is allowed to unlap himself, but at the end of the day, deciding to stay in first only for two more laps to retake the spot. I mean, seriously, that that doesn't help anybody's race. But that's not my issue with the whole thing. The on-track piece, I think Max made a mistake to, to slam yep. the door that hard. I honestly believe that. But it was a racing incident, and I don't really have a problem with that. My issue was Max's toddler-like behavior post-race. Yeah, so post-race, um, Max waited around in the FIA garage and over at the Waybridge specifically to confront Esteban Ocon. And the whole incident ended up with him 
from from what I understand, it was not a shoving match. It was a one-way thing with Verstappen pushing Ocon potentially multiple times and the two having to be separated by FIA officials. So obviously he got they both got summoned to the marshals over the whole incident and the whole situation. So Ocon got a 10-second stop-go for the incident during the race. He did not get penalized for the post-race activities. What Max had to say prior to going to the marshals, prior to that whole discussion happening, um, but in reaction to the incident in the garage, he said, I don't care what those people say. I'm a winner. You get taken out like that to get a stupid response from his side as well. I was not happy about that. We are all passionate about the sport. It would be odd if I would shake his hand. Okay, so after he went and talked to the marshals and put his head straight, what did he have to say? Well, he went and spoke to uh, Ziggo Sport, the Dutch TV channel, um, about what happened. He, he did say that it was not his initial intention to push Esteban. What he did say is, it's always easy to talk afterwards. I just wanted to look for him and ask what was going on. How could something like this happen? But he immediately answered, I was faster than you, and said it with such a smile on his face. I tried to be as positive as possible towards my mechanics, but of course this second place doesn't feel right. And then you meet someone like him who doesn't even apologize for what happened and reacts exactly the other way around. Okay. But the only reason he had that conversation with Ocon was because he waited at the weigh-in weigh in mm -hmm. for him. He laid in wait. Yeah. That's just wrong. Now, he was asked if he thought that um, Ocon had done this to take revenge for some of their clashes that they had had in European Formula 3. And they had had quite a few. These guys have a history with each other. And Verstappen, actually, his response was no, and he's actually no competitor at all in Formula One. Oh, my. Very bad blood between these two. Interesting. Yeah. So as a result, well, actually, even before we get to, to as a result of what happened, Christian Horner defended Max. Shocking. I know. So what Christian had to say, and he was talking to Sky Sports, was he said, I think Max has been pretty restrained. Excuse me. I think Max has been pretty restrained. It cost him a Grand Prix victory. He's driven his heart out with a damaged car. <clears throat> Esteban, <coughs> excuse me. Esteban was lucky to get away with a push, to be honest with you. Emotions are running high. I told him, just get yourself under control on the cooldown lap because he's lost a victory through no fault of his own today, and it's hugely frustrating for him and for the team. We've done everything right. We had Mercedes on the ropes. We passed Ferrari. Hugely frustrating for everybody to lose a victory through a back marker. He said, it's clear that as a lap car, you shouldn't interfere with the leader. What on earth Ocon was thinking out there about their just beggar's belief. Okay. So he went on to say about the tire situation, admitting that at that point Ocon was on fresh tires, and, and that put him in a better situation. Uh, so 
Christian replied that, you know, they're quick on the straight. We know that. But why on earth is he racing the leader? He's a lap down. He doesn't have the pace. He chucked the car up the inside there. It just makes absolutely no sense at all. I just, I, and this is where you, you knew that Esteban was there. Where Esteban ended up really would have had no influence on you in the race mm -mm. other than he would have been a little annoying he didn't necessarily need to close the door on him well and that's the thing is every christian wants to talk about Ocon racing the race leader but he's not talking about max racing the last racing a post, back marker the the back marker i mean come on there's no reason for that. And even if he had caught him a couple of laps later when the tires cooled, you know, when the tires wore in, that kind of thing, he may or may not have caught Ocon in the next couple of laps. Well, it wouldn't have mattered. He still would have won the race. He, he probably would not have gotten it there when they come out on the straight after the Senate S's. He probably would not have gotten DRS because of the fact that I think Ocon had just come out of the pits. Mm -hmm. But within a lap, he would have had DRS on Ocon, and he would have been able to leverage that, in addition to everything else that was going on. Yeah, I... <clears throat> I go back to the very statement of Lewis summed it up, and I have to, I have to go with Lewis's comment. You had more to lose. So... so you got to evaluate that when you go into those situations. The fallout from this whole incident, from the stewards. I'm going to read their verdict word for word. A whole lot better than me trying to explain it. So the stewards released a statement that said, The stewards reviewed video evidence from the FIA's CCTV cameras and heard from the driver of car 33, Max Verstappen, and the driver of car 31, Esteban Ocon, and the team representatives. The driver, Max Verstappen, entered the FIA Waybridge garage, proceeded directly to driver Esteban Ocon, and following a few words, started an altercation, pushing or hitting Ocon forcefully several times in the chest. The stewards held a hearing in which both drivers acted appropriately and cooperated with the stewards. The stewards understood from Max Verstappen that he was extremely upset by the incident on track during the race and accepted his explanation that it was not his in original intent to strike Ocon, but that he was triggered and caused him to lose his temper. While sympathetic to Verstappen's passion, the stewards determined that it is the obligation of the sportsmen at this level to act appropriately and as role models to other drivers at all levels and found that Verstappen failed in this respect. The stewards, therefore, ordered that Max Verstappen is required to perform two days of public service at the direction of the FIA within six months of the incident. Pentacle Penalty under Article 12.3.1c of the Interna the FIA International Sporting Code. So he has to pick up garbage alongside the racetrack? Does well, he have to wear the orange suit? Because that would be appropriate. We, we don't know what the exact... What this means in terms of public service. So they said two days of public service. Is that 48 hours? Is that 16 hours? 
we don't know, A, how they calculate two days of public service. We don't know what that means. Is he doing litter patrol at, at the side of a track or, or at in, I think a it Dutch would be, interstate? Or, I think it would be awesome <clears throat> if he had to pick up garbage at Abu Dhabi during, like, testing. You know, is he going to be required to sweep sand out of the parking lot at the track at Abu Dhabi? Maybe he has to go and work at the local animal shelter and, and clean out the cages. And I, I, We don't know exactly what this means. And, and How fast do you think Susie Wolf was on the phone and said, Max could volunteer in my Dare to be Different uh, I, Well, actually, my guess is based on that behavior, unless it's... Uh, as a unless warning it's a to presentation others. to yeah, <laughs> uh, what not to do post race when you're pissed off. I don't think she wants him there. No, I'm thinking as a, an example. As you know, everybody's an example. Sometimes you're a warning to others. Yeah. Um, I actually think that's a pretty weenie penalty. Honestly, it, it is. And there's a lot of folks who were calling for um, an exclusion from Abu Dhabi as a result of this, which. I think might actually have been more in line and have more of an impact to Max than two days of public service. There's actually been some some takedowns, not just of Max and the FIA and their penalty here, but of the Verstappen family in general. And over the fact that, you know what, say what you want about the promise that Max has and how um, Yas has shepherded Max's career along, that there actually is a bit of a family history in the Verstappen family for this, whether it's domestic violence allegations around Yas and Max's mom, the first wife, because Yas is on wife number two, to behavior that Yas has had both on and off the track around other drivers, that this is the example that Max has, and this is why Max Max is behaving the way he is. I don't know. I think that there's probably some family therapy that needs to occur. And maybe just some general family altitude or attitude realignment that needs to occur. And I would suggest that any woman looking to date Max, <laughs> they'd be very well aware of these things. Go in with your eyes wide open. Don't get blinded by future world champion. So, track news. Event news. Let's move on. We, we, we've gone on this a lot. I think this horse is going to get beaten up a lot over the next couple of weeks. But other news. So, we had mentioned a couple of weeks ago that Chase Carey and the FIA were, were kind of throwing down the gauntlet to some of the other tracks that had legacy deals that were negotiated um, with um, Bernie Eccleston and Formula One management and that Formula One group didn't necessarily like a lot of those deals and didn't necessarily like the counter deals that were coming back from some of these venues. Well, Chase has gone on a bit more. You know, is for someone who says he does not want to negotiate deals in public, he's working on negotiating deals in public. No, oh, yeah, nothing like consistency. So, speci- what he's targeting now is saying that some of the past events that Formula One has had, or, or the events that that Formula One has had, they, they've gone a bit stale. Mm. 
He says, the promotion end of our business has been viewed as more mature than other revenue streams in Formula One. This perception was fueled by a lack of investment or freshness by the prior regime in our events. Quite simply, our events became stale, which led promoters to focus on costs as opposed to growth. Events today are more valuable than ever, and we have a world-class premium event. We need to focus on maximizing the value of events and communicating that to host locations. We're encouraged that the message is getting through to both existing and potential new host cities. We believe that there is still potential growth, significant growth, in the promotion segment during the next few years. The growth will be driven by three factors. First, we expect to expand our calendar beyond our current 21 race schedule. The expansion will be modest, but we have been excited by the number, quality, and diversity of new locations interested in hosting a race. We are on the right side of the quality of races or fees. Every race needs to be great for fans and be an attractive business proposition. The race we announced at Vietnam last week is a prime example of an event that will provide a great track for racing in a location that captures the world's imagination. Second, we expect to replace a few existing races where we inherited unattractive agreements with new races or agreements that are better for racing and provide more value. Third, there is significant long-term value in our higher-end hospitality experience. Major events today increasingly rely on those customers willing and able to pay for a unique and tailored experience both in the corporate and retail end. Okay. So you could look at that both ways. On one hand, this could be the message to facilities like Baku and maybe Bahrain, potentially even Abu Dhabi of the fans really don't like you. Mm -hmm. You don't really bring a whole lot to the sport. The fans don't get excited when we go there. Um, don't think you're getting premium fees or you're, you're going to be able to get to, to negotiate pretty deals with us. On one hand, you could see that. On the other, you could see the, this is the look at a Silverstone. This is a look at a Monza. This is a look at some of these other tracks of, yeah, we really like you and we'd love you to stay on, on the calendar, but you're not going to fleece us in order to get on, to, to keep your contracts. Exactly. I don't know which way it's going to be. The other one was I thought that I thought was interesting was about the hospitality experience. And could this potentially be also that message of, yep, these experiences are expensive. Formula One tickets are expensive. We make money off of them. They're all going to stay expensive, and we're not going to be cutting deals to, to build up attendance. Okay. I don't know. We'll have to see how this all shakes out because there's definitely a shift, and there's definitely things that are in flux. But we can't possibly predict what they're going to do just now. Remember, this was the group that was going to blow up the F1 experience. Yeah. And, and who knows? Maybe they're just going to come up with better experiences. I mean, they've already come up with the hot laps. Mm -hmm. um, and we've seen both the, the teams 
and fans taking advantage, and, and even the media taking advantage of the, these hot lap experiences. And I think that's been kind of good. Mm-hmm. We'll see where it goes from there. I think I think there's a lot of potential here. Um, actually, you got to give them credit. They're thinking outside the old school box. Yeah. And in our last bit of news, you know, we talked last week about um, McLaren officially saying that they will be running in the Indy 500 in 2019 um, and trying to build out the structure around that. We still don't know for certain what power units they're going to use, but we do know who is going to lead that effort. Formula Force India Deputy Team Principal Bob Fernley will be leading the effort to bring McLaren to the Indianapolis 500 in 2019. Okay. So, Bob, since he's out of a job with Sahara Force India. I mean, he certainly got got experience running a race team. Yeah. So I think that will be pretty cool. Um, Hopefully he won't be as whiny in IndyCar as he was. We're not part of the strategy group. We're not part of this. We're not part of that, Bob Fernley. Well, at that point, I think everyone's response is going to be, well, okay, fine. You can participate. Run a whole season. I know. It's it's more than a race, guys. Yeah. So on that note, because that wraps up everything, we're going to call it a show. But a reminder, we do intend to have a show Thanksgiving weekend, so you can listen to it as you do your final Thanksgiving weekend shopping. Shopping or leftover eating? Well, that too, either one. You know, some people do shopping all weekend. I don't know why, but they do that. You mean to the start of their Christmas shopping, not their food shopping like well, after yeah. Thanksgiving, because that seems silly. Well, yeah. Or, you know, maybe as you're coming home from your Thanksgiving celebrations on Sunday, you can catch us to download to listen on your way back. That would be outstanding. And on that note, we'll call it a show. We are so glad you came. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. Remember, please discard all candy wrappers and popcorn containers in the nearest trash receptacle. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> okay. Are they all gone? Uh, is, is, there, is everybody gone? <laughs> huh? Good. Oh my gosh, my cheeks are killing me. I can't keep smiling like this anymore. I am exhausted. I think I need a break. A little break? Okay. Phew.